And I invite you this morning, turn to Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 14, and then also to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Isaiah 7, 1 to 14, Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. And this morning, as we uh, bask in the afterglow of Christmas and get ready to celebrate the new year, I want you to know where Jesus is in your life. So that if you are in the habit of reflecting on the last 12 months, as people often do as we get near ready to change calendar years, you'll gain some insight into where Jesus was. And as you get ready for the next 12 months, you'll have confidence in where Jesus will be. And we're going to do that by thinking about the promise of Christmas in two passages. The first is an Old Testament passage in Isaiah where God first gives the Emmanuel promise. And then the second is a New Testament passage where God fills the Emmanuel promise full with the coming of Jesus. The Emmanuel promise is God's pledge that he is God with us. And what these passages, uh, the point these passages make so powerfully, as you'll see this morning, is that the pledge to be God with us is given to his people while they are experiencing confusion, betrayal, and danger. And in the case of the Isaiah passage, it's also given to a people who have no expectation that God will actually be with them. Uh, not because they don't believe in God, but because they are a people who willingly and repeatedly choose idolatry and sin over Jesus. And they know that they do that. And Jesus knows that they do that. And they know that Jesus knows that they do that. And yet, the promise of God is that he will be with them, sinners, in the valley of the shadow of death. Uh, this morning's sermon is not going to be long. It's probably not going to say anything new to most of you. But since we're all leaving a year that has had uh, joy and sorrow confusion and clarity, it's good for us to remember where Jesus was. He was with us. And as a people who are preparing for another 12 months, which are by definition unknowable and uncertain because it's the future and it hasn't happened yet, it's good to know where Jesus will be. He will be with us. And as a people who sin and will sin again, and who fail, and who need redemption. It's good to know that Jesus is God with us. And so let's reflect on this together. We'll read Isaiah 7, 1 through 14 first. Then we'll read Matthew 1, 18 through 25. And then we'll work our way backward from our reading, looking first at Joseph's conundrums. And then second, God's God with us in hardship. Then third, Ahaz and Judah's conundrums. And then we'll close with our fourth point, God with us in sin and sorrow. I know I have four points instead of three. It's my belated Christmas present to you. You're welcome. Uh, let's, uh, let's hear God's word. Uh, Isaiah 7, verses 1 through 14. This is God's word. Uh, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. 
when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sher Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remalia, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Amaria has, Remalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, well, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you must weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now on to Matthew chapter 1. Verses uh, 18 through 25. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The grass withers, flowers fade, the mountains will one day fall into the heart of the sea. The word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, as we just heard, we want to be firm in faith. We want to trust you so that whatever we face, we can do so in the confidence that you are with us. And Lord, we know that the only way to be firm in faith is to have your word firmly written upon our hearts. 
So, Father, we pray this morning that your Spirit, who inspired and preserved your word, would now be at work in each of our hearts to write it upon our hearts so that we might trust you with all that we are. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher, and may the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word this morning, may it all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking first at Joseph's conundrums, and I, I want you to get a sense of Joseph's predicament. It's much more complicated, I think, than many of us realize. First, it's important to know that in this culture, there were generally three steps involved in joining a husband to a wife. And the first step was the promise. And in that step, families within a village or town would pay attention to their kids and would basically guess who might make a good match. And if the family saw two kids who they thought might work well together, if they thought they could get along with their in-laws pretty well, if each family had enough money, if they were sufficiently pious, these families would promise their son and daughter to each other. Now, the reality is this could happen young. So for you adults in the room, how many of you are the same person you were when you were 10? Or maybe you're a teenager. Like, are you the same person you were when you were six? Like, no, right? People change as they get older. Their interests shift. Their personalities adapt. They grow. And we pray they mature. And, and as all of that happens, the good match that the family saw at the beginning maybe was no longer a good match. And, and in that case, the promise was called off. Uh, I think sometimes we... We view these things as sort of irrevocable, but they were not. Uh, it was a guess, and if the guess turned out to be bad, they'd be like, you know what? It's not great. Let's get out of it. But sometimes the match turned out to be good. Sometimes it was really good. And for kids like Mary and Joseph growing up together in a small town, a smaller than Walker and smaller even than North Liberty, they knew each other, and they very obviously grew close together, and grew to love one another because they moved on to the next step, which was betrothal, which is not engagement in the ancient world. Betrothal was legal. It entitled you to legal rights of inheritance within the family. It gave you an official voice in how families would make large financial decisions. And if there was a discussion about moving, it gave you a, basically a vote in whether or not you would move. Betrothal obligated you to adopt orphan children within the family if no one else was able to do that. And it made you liable and responsible for the taxes that families had to pay to Rome and the tithes they needed to pay to the temple not engagement. So what was marriage? Well, marriage was the last step, which allowed your union to be consummated, to bear your own children and heirs, and of course all the other intangible but real blessings that marriage is to provide. But for our purposes, betrothal basically involved everything other than sharing a house together, which is why our text says that Joseph was contemplating divorce. And it's also why when Joseph found out that Mary was 
pregnant, he was debating about whether or not he was going to divorce her. He felt a deep and profound betrayal. See, they had connected their lives together, and from his perspective, not yet knowing what had happened, he felt that connection belittled and severed by the cruel heartache of betrayal. But I want you to notice another aspect of Joseph's conundrum on top of this. Our text says in verse 19, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Uh, every translation that I know is out there uh, in the congregation has basically the same sentence structure. Being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. Uh, that makes it sound like there's a conflict in Joseph's heart between justice and mercy. Uh, it makes it sound like Joseph feels some kind of moral obligation to end their relationship, but then also feels some kind of emotional attachment that's moderating those demands of justice. And that's just wrong. And it's not what the text says. What the text says literally is Joseph, being righteous, was unwilling to put her to shame. And this is so important because it shows me that like his great, 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 however many great grandfather, David, that Joseph was a man after God's own heart. In God's heart, justice and mercy go together. And for God, righteousness means treating even the people who hurt you with as much tenderness as possible. And again, Joseph doesn't know what's happened yet. But what he's doing is righteousness. He's basically saying in his heart, I love you, but I'm so hurt by you that I can't see how to repair our relationship. But I'm not going to disgrace you or shame you or get revenge on you and hurt you. I'm going to protect you as much as I can, even as I try to shield myself justifiably from the fallout of this incredibly deep betrayal. Uh, I hope you can all feel the tearing of Joseph's own heart here. And I'm guessing that if you can, you've had some experience of betrayal and also of a love that wants to protect the person you're suddenly afraid of because they've hurt you so deeply. And if you've had that, then you probably also asked, as I'm sure Joseph was asking, where is Jesus? Where is he? Where's God in this mess? And it's in the middle of this inner turmoil that Matthew so carefully sets up for us that God comes to Joseph and he says in verse 20, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So in the middle of his turmoil and frustration, God comes and says to Joseph, Joseph, you don't need to be afraid of Mary. You don't need to fear that she's betrayed you and may do so again, because she didn't. This is a unique, amazing, miraculous work of God. The Holy Spirit has placed a child in a virgin's womb, and that child is going to be filling full God's promise to be God with us. And it's on that basis then that the text tells us Joseph marries Mary, pun very much intended. Uh, 
well, maybe now you're thinking, okay, well, well, where does the God with us come in? I mean, after all, Joseph got word that he wasn't actually betrayed. So non-problem not solved, I guess. Well, let me submit this to you. The feeling of betrayal and confusion got shifted from one thing to another. Now Joseph has to recognize that the son in Mary's womb is not his own son. And he's going to need to go through the legal process of adoption. Like Mary, he has to figure out how it's possible that a virgin could be pregnant. And then on top of all of that, uh, after he consummates his marriage to Mary or gets married to Mary, Joseph joined Mary in parenting the one who the Bible names the man of sorrows. He moved from one kind of confusion and heartache to another. And think about how their life unfolds. They become refugees. And as they're fleeing to Egypt, they have to live with the weight that their presence in Bethlehem was the spark for Herod's mass murder of children. And out of fear for their own son, and I'm sure for the rest of the children in the area, they were never able to return to the place where they lived as children. That's Matthew 2, 9 through 23. But my question to you is, who was with them in all this confusion and heartache? Uh, Who was with them in sorrow and in grief? Who was with them when they fled and returned? Uh, Who was with them putting the pieces back together in ways they weren't even aware of? Jesus. God with us. Jesus was with them. Just as he was spiritually God with them when Joseph was struggling with feelings of betrayal and when Mary, who we haven't really talked about yet much this season, was struggling with the emotions of undeserved condemnation and undeserved rejection by the man that she loved, right? Where is Jesus in heartache and sin and betrayal and guilt and regret and homelessness, running, hiding, putting a marriage together, breaking a marriage apart, figuring out how to put it back together again, confusion, displacement, all of that. Where is he? The whole point is, he's with us. He's God with us. And from there, let's move to Isaiah. This is going to be short. Long passage, short point. So in Isaiah 7, there's also a betrayal, only this time the betrayal is real. Remember, during Isaiah's time, Uh, God's people have been split in two by a civil war. There's the northern kingdom of Israel called Ephraim in our text and the southern king of Judah. Ahaz is the king of Judah. Now these kingdoms didn't like each other all the time, but there was always something of a connection between them. They both understood that they were the people of God. Both kingdoms, Israel and Judah, are God's people and and therefore they were brothers and sisters. They're, They're like family divided family, but family. So when we read in chapter 7, verse 1, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, that's shocking. It means that Israel, the northern kingdom, joined up with another power to conquer Judah. Because Jerusalem is Judah's capital city. And Ahaz 
and everyone there is totally afraid. And understandably, uh, war is frightening. But I think war caused by betrayal is even more frightening because now you're being stabbed in the back by someone you thought was guarding your back. But there's more to it than just that. You may remember Ahaz from a couple of weeks ago. Ahaz is to Judah what Ahab and Jezebel were to Israel. Uh, Ahaz is a wicked king. And the people of Judah, by and large, are complicit in his wickedness. They exploit the weak. They ignore the poor. They rob from God. They worship idols. And then they go to temple on Saturday. They raise their hands, because they're not Presbyterians. And they celebrate God's love and forgiveness. We are free, forgiven, and favored as God's people. Well, like deep down... In their hearts, though, the people of God know that God always stands opposed to sin. And when this betrayal happens, their hearts shake like the trees of the forest in the storm, as verse 2 says, because they fear that God won't have anything to do with them. That there is no sense in which God will be with them in any way in this terrifying mess. And I think every Christian has wrestled with this fear in some way. Some of us have wrestled with it because, like Judah, we know that there are idols that we worship alongside of Jesus. And some of us know that we sin, that we've sinned against the weak and the vulnerable. Uh, some of us are just not committed to God and to his ways in the world. But we come to church on Sunday, we metaphorically raise our hands, we don't repent. But we do wait for the other shoe to drop so that we can discover that God is not actually with us. And then there's other, others of us who are committed to God in his ways, who do try to repent as best as we're able, but who know that we're sinners. We're aware of our sins. And we think that the mere fact that sin exists means that God really can't be with us in any meaningful sense. Uh, we don't believe that, God, that in God's own heart, Mercy and justice can meet redemptively in our lives. In other words, there are Christians who fear that God won't be with us because we aren't with him. And there are others who fear that God won't be with us because we aren't like him. God answers both fears in our passage when he gives the Emmanuel promise to Ahaz, the great sinner, and to Judah, the great sinner's, and to us, the chief of sinners. Verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. This is an amazing statement. God comes to Ahaz and says, What do you need from me to believe that I am committed to you? Even though you are wicked and need to repent. Like, what do you need to see so that you will believe that you can trust me to be faithful to you, even though you are not at all faithful to me? But poor Ahaz, he is so distant at this point in his life from God and his word that he responds with fear and distrust, disguised, of course, as false piety. Uh, if I can put it this way, he puts on his church clothes and says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Um, 
Ahaz is one of those people who just refuses to be comforted by Jesus. But thankfully for him and for us, God is one of those people who refuses to take no for an answer. Verses 13 to 14. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. God says, essentially here, okay, I'm going to give you a pledge of my righteousness. And that pledge isn't simply that this miraculous, this miracle will occur, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. It's that that son is going to live with you, and when you see him, you will know that I am Emmanuel. I am God with you. With you in your sin. With you in your idolatry. And with you in the experiences of betrayal and heartache and confusion. I am with you. And how do we not see this so beautifully in the life of Jesus. Jesus, when he comes, does not shun the company of sinners or the lives of those who are betraying him. He's as near to Judas as he is to the prostitute, as he is to Peter, and James, and John. He draws near to live with them, to bring repentance and forgiveness and to stand in solidarity as our empathetic counselor and as our shepherd who wills that not one of his people will be lost and therefore not one of his sheep will be lost. And we know that, of course, because Jesus didn't only walk with us. He died for us in order to forgive us our sins. And he rose again as the conqueror of death. And he ascended into heaven where he not only watches over us as our prophet, priest, and king, but walks with us in this life now through his indwelling spirit. When we're having a good, righteous day or a sin day, when we're confused or afraid or just feeling meh, Jesus is with us truly as a church and as an individual people. So in that light, let me just conclude by returning to where we started. Uh, where was Jesus last year? And where will Jesus be this coming year? And the answer is, Jesus was with us in every hour, every minute and second of betrayal, confusion, and hurt. He was with us in every event of joy and happiness. He was with us while we were sinning to bring us to repentance. And he was with us as sinners because he loves us. He was with us as the one who forgives us and as our sanctifier. Look back on your year, my friends, and see Jesus in it because he was there with you as only God can be. And don't do that because... Uh, that will help you look forward. Don't only do that because it will help you look, well, no, let me change that. Do that, look back on your year and see where Jesus was so that as you look forward, you can see where Jesus will be. Jesus will be Emmanuel 
for you in 2022, just as he was in 2021. Uh, whatever happens, whatever happens, good, bad, boring, sin, forgiveness, life choices, whatever, Jesus is God with us. And that confidence will give us, as he tells Ahaz, firm faith a place to stand and tell ourselves and each other and our neighbors the good news of Jesus' committed presence to people like us and to tell them of the hope that's found in him and that's given to all of those who repent and believe in his name. Amen? Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that you are God with us. And Lord, we thank you as we think back even now to the year which has gone before that we can see evidences of your presence with us, that you were near when we were afraid and hurt and scared, that you were near when we were sinning and needed to be brought to repentance, that you were near as our reconciler and our redeemer, that you were near us in times of joy and happiness and contentment. And Lord, we thank you that we can trust that you will be near to us as uh, this next year unfolds according to your perfect plan. Uh, Father, we pray that as your people, you would help us to see clearly your presence in our lives so that we might stand firmly in faith in Jesus and bear witness to him, uh, to each other and to the world, so that uh, we might grow in confidence in who you are for us and that those who do not know you would come to know you and repent and believe and trust in you for salvation. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.